Hello and welcome to The Messy Middle. My name's Andrew Horsfield and this is a podcast for leaders who are looking for insights or ideas about how to deliver results in a demanding context. We all know that success rarely occurs in a straight line. So a critical skill for any modern day leader is being able to find a way rather than lose your way when your aspirations for achievement are being challenged. You can find out more about the podcast or subscribe so you never miss an episode at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. Okay, on to this month's episode. Being a parent can sometimes feel like you're in a perennial messy middle, constantly questioning if what you're doing is working and what you might do differently to better navigate the muddy waters of being a modern day parent. Fortunately, for those of us who are asking these types of questions, there are people like parent educator Steve Bidoff in the world. Steve has an impressive backlog of best-selling books, including Raising Boys, Raising Girls, The Secret of Happy Children, and Manhood. And apart from being a prolific author, he was also voted Father of the Year in 2000 and awarded an Order of Australia medal for his work in youth mental health in the Queen's Honour List. This thought-provoking conversation reflects 30 years of empirical research and practical experience that Steve has gathered in working to make the planet a better place for families, parents and children. Please enjoy this conversation with well-renowned parent educator Steve Bidolf. Steve, welcome to The Messy Middle. I'm so pleased and somewhat privileged to have you as a, a guest on the show and I can't wait for us to start our conversation. So welcome and thank you for uh, agreeing to be a guest. And hello to you, Andrew, and also to anyone listening to the podcast. It's really great to have a chance to talk to you. I wanted to start off by asking you about your Genesis story, Steve, and um, what the catalyst was for you becoming a parent educator. I'm sure everyone listening to the program has a a story that you could take right back to when you were a little baby or something. And I, I certainly came from a family that was very old-fashioned in their approach to parenting. I was born in England, but there was another complicating thing, which was I have a, a thing called Asperger's syndrome, which means that I have a lot of trouble understanding people, especially when I was a teenager. I didn't really know how to communicate very well. And so I was really lucky to choose psychology, which I, looking back, I probably chose psychology because it it might help me to be able to talk to girls. You know, my first job was working in a family therapy clinic where my boss was a, um, a psychiatrist who had this pretty new idea that we should see the whole family. If there was a child having problems um, in those days, they just dropped their child off, like you drop your car off to have a service at the petrol station. And he said, no, we have to see the whole family. And so he was one of the pioneers of, of family therapy. And we worked with hundreds of families in Launceston, where I live, and everyone worked at the, at the textile mill. And, and it was a place people didn't have a lot of education and they didn't have a lot of money, but they, they loved their children, but they often got caught in very negative patterns of parenting. These were such nice people, dads and mums who loved their kids, but they just had terrible ways of talking to them. And so I thought I, someone should write this down. And so I wrote a, a book called The Secret of Happy Children. And that sort of catapulted me into the world of parent education. And 
And I quickly realized something, which was you can sit in a room with a family that's in trouble and, you know, hopefully be of some help to them after four or five hours of getting together. But maybe you could help millions of people if you could write this stuff down. And, and in fact, now I think it's just past four million people have used my books. And so it just was a thing of being efficient, Andrew. I think I just, you know, you've only got one lifetime. You want to reach as many people as you possibly can. And so writing and doing big shows what that I do now, hopefully is a way of preventing people needing to end up in a psychologist's office. All of a sudden I turn around and I'm 67 and that's what I've done with my life. And so just kind of what worked out really. I just want to pick up a couple of things that you mentioned there because I I think two things were raised for me. One, how parenting has changed from what you were explaining that you first confronted, as well as just the difference you saw in the dynamic between treating an individual and working with the group where you could see the dynamics at play and perhaps give better depth to your your help. Yes, of course. And um, it's it's fantastic to be able to talk to a whole family because every every family has kind of has its dance that it does. It's kind of the pattern. And if people listening think about this, um, when you have a kind of a way that things tend to go in your family um, and it happens over and over, especially when things are going badly, they, it, it kind of goes badly in the same little routine. So it's kind of a family dance. And some families have a nice dance where everyone ends up pretty happy and some people just have a crap dance and it always turns out people feeling miserable. And so the thing is to look at, well, how does that dance begin? Who makes the first move and then who says what? What we say in, in the talks is if you change, you work out what your part in the family dance is and if you change your part, then everyone else will have to change their parts as well. And so if your part is always to go silent and sulk, um, then do something different. If, if your part is to yell and throw things, try doing the opposite to that. There's another question, Andrew, which I think you were alluding to, which is that these dances go back um, through many generations. And was that part of what you were thinking too, that the, the, the nature of parenthood and how we do families has changed as well? Was that what you were saying? Yes, absolutely. And, and I'm interested in how you break the pattern of behaviour that may not be the current pattern, even though that's how it's demonstrated or played out or experienced for that family or that group. It may be uh, curated well before that particular dynamic that's just repeating over and over and over. Yes, let's let's give an example so people know what we're what we're talking about here. Um, I was a child in the 1950s in Yorkshire, in England, and um, my mum and dad were um, caring and and loving parents. But um, I, I joke about this. I say Yorkshire was the world capital of negative parenting. And uh, I'm, I'm sure it's different now. There'll be people from Yorkshire listening, I'm sure. And it has changed a lot. And it's and Yorkshire people are also very warm. But but in their parenting, you would be told you're an idiot or you were useless or you're a waste of space. Um, my dad's expression was, you're a daft apath, which I didn't, I thought it was some kind of monkey. But it was actually, a, it meant a daft halfpenny worth. It was an old Yorkshire expression. And, and you know, but you'd be called a fool or an idiot or a, a clot. It was all these stock expressions. Now, I was lucky that I didn't get 
belted. Um, I, I think I got smacked maybe twice in my whole childhood. But my, but I married Sharon, my wife, and in, in her family, she grew up on the cane fields of Queensland. And her dad was a cane cutter. And they were itinerant workers and they had five little girls while living in, in you know, Pickers accommodation all down the coast of Queensland. And and so her parents just hadn't didn't know what to do to get keep these little kids under control. And and so my Sharon and her sisters got belted a lot. And so when Sharon and I got together, um Sharon was really clear that she never wanted us to ever hit our children. And she yeah. made that wonderful, that wonderful jump of insight to say, you know, I didn't like that. And I'm not and I'm damn sure our kids are never going to experience that. So that's sort of a lot of the things we put in the books were things that we were learning ourselves. And we were also talking to lots of young families all over the world. We were working in England, working in Germany and Japan, all over the place. And people were telling us what they did and what worked and what didn't work. So it was a, a lovely thing because the whole world really was changing. Um, uh, Dr. Spock, Benjamin Spock, had uh, come out and, 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 and he said to parents, deep in your heart, you know what's right. He said, you know, here's a book that I've written and the same at the start of my books. They always say, um, look, these are some ideas. These are some of the things that people are thinking. Listen to your own heart. And um, and you'll know if something feels right or feels wrong um, because we've been raising children for millions of years. I can remember uh, um, we've got two kids and I can remember saying to Sarah when Benjamin, our, our first, was born, I can distinctly remember the day I became a parent. And funnily enough, it wasn't the day he was born. It, there's so much information and it, you are so naive and unknowing in the initial stages and wanting to get it right as if there's a right way. And and I can remember the day where we were feeling overwhelmed and just I said to Sarah, let's just keep reading and keep talking to people, but let's just start paying more attention to our child and what we're seeing and observing and noticing and rather than what we're reading and should be doing. Yes, that's that's fantastic to hear that you did that. And were there specific things that you that you changed or or relaxed about, Andrew? Can you remember any of those? We we found that just we were more relaxed and more open to the wrongness as opposed to the rightness or trying to get it right. I think, and it just freed us up to to think we're not going to break them or damage them as much as we think we're going to, and. Uh, it was significant for us, and that may not be everyone's experience or story, but it certainly resonated with what you uh, just mentioned. I, I really like that, and 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 I, th- I think that it's uh, parenthood is a is a fumbling sort of a process um, where you kind of bumble along, and, um, and because the children keep changing all the time, and um, and so you're always having to learn and, f- and figure out the next step. Um, and it's it's just the best way to do it. And one of the things I think that I was thinking about this when I knew I was going to be doing this interview was that we're living in a time that is very unfriendly to to families. Certainly, it, you know, we've got fantastic hospitals and pretty safe drinking water and food and things like that. A lot of things are great, but but I, people have never been more stressed. And, and I have a, a motto, and I this motto has become so important. I just yesterday put it on the right on the front of my homepage on my website, and it, what it is is that 
Hurry is the enemy of love. The more that we hurry or feel we have to hurry, um, then love goes out the window. And so the pace of life, which people now feel they have to keep up, where, you know, where everyone's got to be working long hours and we've got to be rushing to after-school activities and we've got to be doing loads and loads of things all the time. Um, one of the things that we wrote in one of our books was sit down and have a drink as soon as you get home with your partner. Um, and for about 10 minutes, just chill. And don't even too much talk about how your day has been. What happens then is, and I know you've got things to do, you've got meals to cook and children to do things with, and they're probably, kids are probably hanging around and, and um, getting in, in the way. But if you spend 10 minutes just settling down together, something happens, you know, if they study this in a laboratory or somewhere, people's heartbeats start to get into the same rhythm. And you start to look at each other and, and, no, and notice, oh, she, she looks, you know, a bit pale and he looks, you know, so tired when I'm looking at him and and you start to see each other for real and you start to sympathize with each other, but you get into rhythm and harmony. And so, you know, by the time and you sit down and you have your dinner and, and so on, there's a, hopefully a feeling of, of, you know, we're together. This is, this is nice. And the kids are laughing and they're telling you stories and, and you're giving them, you know, affirmation and encouragement and and you're tasting the food and you're you know smiling and laughing with your partner and and so setting that up is really really important you can in your own family you can take charge of that and make your family a, a peaceful and really nice place how does that frame the experience of kids in being either part of that or seeing the parents do that and my other question is I love that. What about the single parents who are struggling with all of that equally and don't have necessarily that other person on hand? Do you have other suggestions about how they might reduce that overwhelm that creates that stress? One of the things, of course, you know, a lot of time people feel like being a single parent is is kind of like a, a failure or something uh, second rate. And, and so... It's really important to know, and I say this in, 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 in the Raising Boys talk, because I think that single mothers of sons feel this the most acutely, um, is that women on their own can raise boys very, very successfully, um, and they can raise them to be fine young men. And, and women have done that for thousands of years. But the thing that's that's needed if you are a single parent, of course, is you need someone to fill your tank. And so it's really, really important to not treat it as a as a marathon or as an endurance race. Um, it's much longer than that. And so you have to have um, things that top up your tank. And if you're if you're almost down to your reserve tank, um, then you're gonna have to do something about that. And so, you know, to get a massage or to to get a coffee with friends in the middle of the day um, and sometimes to look at have I really created a, a fairly lonely life um, and, you know, is there, are there people around? And, and one of the things I think is really helpful to have is to have friends, not just to have peer friends, but to sometimes have people who are significantly older than you um, that you 
hang out with or talk to because the, the job of the older generation is to encourage the younger um, and to tell them they're doing fine and to occasionally, you know, maybe give them some clues. But, but we actually need old for older friends as well as people our own age. I, I think the challenge that you're setting down, which is a reason one for, for many parents, is just escaping that reactiveness to life uh, to take a step back to think about what you want to create and therefore what are the decisions that you need to make to create that and you know I'm thinking about your impressive backlog of best-selling books and uh, orders of Australia awards and your own experience um, and and wanting to ask about the key themes or patterns that you see contributing to raising healthy, happy kids like you're suggesting now? Are there other things that you think parents need to be thinking of um, to give the kids uh, or their kids the best start to life, to be responsible citizens and have a sense of self and and just grow up to be healthy, happy and vibrant? Oh, gosh, you ask these big questions, Andrew. There's a thing that we do sometimes um, I, I do this sometimes with when I've got people for a longish period of time. Say, once I had two hundred mothers in the room; they were all mothers of little boys or boys of some age or other, and and we had them for the whole day. And and at the start of the day, I said, "There's a thing I'd like you to do. I'd like you to imagine your um your perfect man. Uh, you know, what's what is a good man?" really look like and and what is a good man and there was a lot of uh, what you could call sort of ribald laughter and comments as, as you know when you get a group of women together um and um but when they quietened down i got a big wide whiteboard and and i said call boil it down to a single word you know a good man is what and and call out the word and i'll write it on the board but I wrote it on the board in a rather strange way, which people people listening can picture. Some of the words are over to the left of the board and some are over to the right of the board and some were around about in the middle of the board. And someone would say, oh, good, you know, a good man to me is kind. And so I put kind on the left side and, and they'd say, a good man is um, funny or caring um, sensitive, and then someone else would call out reliable, and reliable would go over on the right-hand side of the board, and they'd say trustworthy. And one of the things, Andrew, that was for me as a, as a psychologist back then very poignant about this because you could see the faces of of the women in the room and the words they were calling out and I'm sure listeners know what's coming here, the things that they called out, of course, were the things that the, perhaps they hadn't they hadn't experienced in the men in their lives. You know, so a woman called out trustworthy, you know, fairly safe bet that she had experienced lack of trustworthiness in the men in her world. And and so so we covered that board and and then you know, we sort of looked, stood back and looked at it. So that's a pretty fantastic prescription for a good man. And I said to them, can you see, looking at the board, can you see what I've been doing? And 
well, how come the words are all on one side or the other? And all the words on one side were like kind and caring and funny and gentle, words like that. And on the right side were strong and reliable and trustworthy and honest. And if you think about those, um, and I won't, Andrew, I won't put you on the spot about that, but it was really clear the left side words were what you could call heart um, qualities, caringness and kindness and the qualities of the heart. And the, the ones on the right side of the board, strong and trustworthy and reliable, they're backbone words. You can't boil it down any clearer than that. A good man has heart and backbone. Um, and having one of those on its own is not enough. And so um, if we come right back, Andrew, to the start of your question, um, in raising our kids, what do we want them to be? And I think those are the qualities. We want them to have heart and we want them to have backbone. And so you can look at each of your children and, and think, you know, which they're probably strong on one, but maybe the other one needs a bit of work. And and then it's kind of, it gives you a maybe a bit of a long-term goal. We need that boy to be able to be straight and talk straight and think straight. Um, we need that our daughter. She's a, she's a sweetheart, but she 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 needs to learn how to stand up for herself. And and so you can, or else you know, our whole family is big on backbone, but we're low on heart, and we need to have more fun and more kindness and more cuddles. You can you can balance it on those. Um, qualities and and it means that you sort of have a long-term goal you know, you know we've got 15 20 years to make a human being um, let's occasionally just check on with on our long-term goals not have they done their homework but you know are they a kind of person you'd want to marry or want to have work with you how do we help our kids make those age-appropriate decisions to develop some of those skills on either side of the list. So encourage, obviously, the skills we see and want to nurture and recognise and and encourage, but also, you know, make sure that they're de- the developing the roundedness that you're talking about or even a sense of responsibility for their own decision-making and outcomes and consequences. Do you have any any thoughts or tips or ideas or insights for people listening about that? Okay, well, let's let's think of a um, a, a really concrete example. So let's say um, say you've got a a boy of about fourteen, and um, and he he's asked if he can go to his friend's place on a Friday night um, to, and it's maybe it's a couple of kilometres away across the suburbs, and um, and they're going to play computer games and and just hang out at this friend's place. No, you know, something just about all kids do at that age and 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 they just and they've said, you know, you know, mum, dad can, you know, can I can I go and play computer games at my mate's place and and you say, you know, where is it? And you you know, you know the the parents or you talk to the parents to make sure that they're that's where they are going and that's all all right with them and um and you say, yeah, that's totally fine and we just need you to be home by 10.30 at night. Um, and the the night comes, Friday night comes, and it's 10.30 and he doesn't show up and it's quarter to 11. Then it's 11 and still hasn't shown up. And um, eventually about 11.15, um, 
in he comes and and you're by then you're really kind of you know you weren't planning to stay up that late you know and and um and you were worried you weren't sure if you should get in your car and drive over there or or what to do and um when he comes in the door um you know you could yell at him and you could tell him he's grounded and you have a big scene and um and maybe that would be appropriate but um but you could maybe say well um look this this is a problem you, you didn't keep your agreement and um i'm pretty tired now so in the morning and you probably you are as well so in in the morning um we're gonna have to have a talk about that and so the first thing is you pick your time you, you, you do it in a, in your comfort zone um next morning you sit down you say um you don't say you know you're bad you're terrible you're thinking this is a chance to develop some backbone in this kid and so you say you know i've got a problem with what happened i i was scared last night what, what might have happened to you i didn't know what what to do whether we should ring up the parents whether we should drive over there or whether you know how long are you going to be and because usually you keep your agreements and and what's the story maybe there's a some reason what's the story and you give him the chance to um to set out because you don't know the reason behind it and he says oh look i'm, I'm really sorry and I, I i won't do it again and he goes to kind of head off out the door you say no sit down you know no, we haven't we haven't finished yet um what's what happened because you made it you know do you remember making that deal you know do you remember saying you'd be in at 10 30 well yeah i do and well what, what what happened he said well i it got to about 10 30 and and nobody else wanted to stop and um i didn't want to walk home on my own and um okay and so so what did you do well he said well i just thought you know i'd wait till quarter two and then i i'll wait till 11 and it won't be two and then it just got late and okay and so well again you know i need you to know that was that was a bad experience for us we we need to be able to trust you and we need to have a plan for what what are you going to do next time so that we can let you go out to your friend's place in future and and so you talk it through and and maybe you know he'll ring you um maybe he'll have um um an, an, um a prearranged thing if it's you know he'll call if he needs a ride if it's got it's a bit scared of the walk or something like that and, and nowadays kids often have phones and they can call us but whatever it is um you have a plan and and so what's happened in, in through that process he's realized that he was wrong. He did do something badly, um, but there's a there's a way out of that. But it involves a little bit of sweating it out. You know, he's got to figure out a, a better way to behave. Now, ninety five percent of parents in the past they would have yelled at that kid, told him how bad he was, and you know, he's grounded for a month, um, which wouldn't have taught him anything at all, except maybe to be a bit more sneaky. Um, or they just let it ride, um, and a lot of affluent parents now they kind of think, oh well, I you know I don't want to be an enemy of my children. I want to be a cool parent. You know what the heck? You know he got home. They just let it let it slip, and so that way the child never develops any backbone. 
Um, what you're wanting is that, you know, when your teenage daughter is, is, is 19 and she's in another country getting into a car with some, some boys and then they're good boys and she knows them but they've had way too much to drink or to smoke, um, that she sees your face looking at her, you know, in her mind's eye with this, like, this quizzical look on her, saying, you know, you know, have you thought this through, you know, and for her to say to those boys, look, actually, um, I'm pretty tired. I think I'll stay in the hotel tonight. And, and she doesn't get into that car and she doesn't get killed in a car crash with those boys. That's what you want to have happen, isn't it, Andrew, that, that, that she has backbone that she carries with her. When, when you're 10,000 miles away, our kids are going to be in those situations and, and we want them to, to be prepared and to have a clear mind. And it's not a bad thing to actually rehearse those things and say, okay, you know, um, this is your first party that you're going to go to where people are going to be drinking and you're, you're 17 or 18 and, and that's, that's how it goes. There's a couple of scenarios I want to run past you. Um, if this happens, what's, what's the plan? If that happens, what's the plan? Always with your kids, you know, run through. Um, what are you going to do? What are the, you know, what's going to happen and what are the choices? How will you manage these various scenarios? And um, part of that backbone quality is, is you've, you've actually got it in your in your front of your brain um so that you have a plan you've got literally got you know like a script you know here's what i'm going to say if uh here's what i'm going to do if and um it's it's a wonderful thing and and kids really respect that um that we're interested in their world they see us as, as an ally not some kind of policeman um but someone who's on their side but but is asking some of the hard questions I'd love to just drill down into a couple of things that are front of mind for me, if that's okay, with what you've just explained and articulated so well. Issues are much easier to deal with before they happen than after they happen. That's so preempting and and being part of that conversation, I think, means that there's a shared solution rather than a, a punishment or a consequence that's being discussed. Um, my question is, how much does a strong sense of self being built and developed in kids create an antidote to a lot of what you're explaining? One of the big myths that's floating around at the moment in um, a lot of, even in politics and climate change and things like that, is this I, this word resilience that you keep hearing, um, as if there was a, a kind of a a mythical sort of mystical quality that some people have that makes them strong and some people others don't. And whereas what what we know about human beings is that we're a, we're a, we're a herd animal. I mean, we have our independent thought and we we're responsible for ourselves and we're individuals. Um, but where we get our strength from and our character even and and our lovingness is from the way that. We can lean into other people. And so nearly all the foundations of this, of having a child who is self-believing and not overly swept along by the peer group, um, is that in the younger years, and people who are listening who have younger children, they've just had a lot of really nice, loving experiences with mum and dad. And, and hopefully grandma, grandpa, and 
And one of the, th- the main messages in, in the, my books about boys and men was that in the 20th century, and I know, um, Andrew, that you're a bit of an exception to this because um, before we were talking about your dad being a, a pretty nice dad, but on the whole, uh, in the 20th century, dads were pretty absent and Part of that was they were absent because they were off in a war or things like that, but also in the workplace. The workplace really took men away from the family quite a lot. And so the average kid, when I first was researching my boys' book, the average kid in the Western world was only getting about eight minutes a day of one-to-one attention from their father, which is not very much. Um, Now, it's quite on the cards that, that kids need hours a day of, you know, boys or girls of, of, of their parents' time. If you've got a kid that you're worried about at the moment, a really great thing is to go away for two nights with just you and that child and because you can only be close to one person at a time. And so have mini breaks that are just one adult and one child. And, and I learned this from um, Professor um, Bruce McDonald, who founded the, the um the fatherhood foundation and the the he says that you know he calls it dad dates and it's time with one parent and one child together but in in the broader picture if if kids feel they've just had you know lots of not i don't mean kind of spending money and going to theme parks not that kind of um extravagant kind of idea but hanging out a lot kicking the ball in the backyard uh, taking the dog for a walk with your teenage daughter or, you know, um, going away for a couple of days with a couple of other dads and with their kids um, so that the children have a feeling like, you know, mum and dad, they, they really love me. You know, I have my birthday. I could choose my, my own food to be cooked on my birthday and I feel really special in our family. And um, if you talk to kids, some kids really have that. They have a feeling of, you know, they love being with their mum and dad. Other kids feel like, oh, you know, I'm not good enough. You know, a lot of the teenage stuff and the older stuff is built on these foundations that little kids feel very loved. Um, and they want to please us and they want to um, just to be proud of them. And and you don't have to be heavy because because um, they know that they've got a strong bond. They know that they can always talk to you when they're in trouble. And so a lot of it is, the, you know, the, the lovely things you do, you know, going to the playground to muck around. You're, every day you're building the foundations, even though you just think you're getting through the day, you're building something stronger and stronger. I always see, I mean, this podcast is called The Messy Middle for a reason, which is, you know, the philosophy that I don't think it's uh, that our parenting isn't when, we're reading stories, getting kisses, getting cuddles. While that is parenting and it's a beautiful part of the role, uh, my perspective is that, that our, our level and skill and capability of a parent is most needed when the things aren't going so well because that's our opportunity to build the very skills that you've been talking about um, during this I- interview and to coach a- and nurture and give our, our kids the care they need to better manage situations that might not be going so well. And I just wondered to go back to the example you you gave to take another um, perspective on the question about the 14-year-old boy who didn't get home on time and 
you gave one a great scenario about sitting down and having that conversation calmly and lovingly. I wondered what about those parents out there who are past that point for whatever reason where they feel that this is now just a butting of horns and a power struggle and I've tried to sit down and all I get is a grunt or argumentative behaviours or pushback or power struggle. Um, I'm sure that you've got potentially some other advice or insight for that parent who might be looking for more help uh, or level of, of help for that sort of scenario. Well, it's always, you know, fine and, and okay to actually literally get help and, and go and talk to someone about the problems you're having with your kids. And you know, things get pretty drastic sometimes. I, um, some good friends of ours, um, their son had smashed up, you know, part of their house and, and they just called, they called the police and, and the police came and, and they said to this boy, you know, if, if you can't be safe, then, you know, we will have to take you to the police station, and 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 you may not be able to go on living with your parents. And so, um, sometimes we have to put some boundaries in and say, you know, for us to live together, we you know we're going to drive you places, and we're going to cook meals for you. Um, it's a contract, and and there's some bottom lines here. You. you you can't swear at us. You can't be rude to us. Um, if you're stressed and you need some time on your own, that's okay. But we have to sit down and talk. And maybe, if, maybe they have to bring in someone from the outside to be a. You know, that's what we did as in family therapy. We were working with families where they, where communication had broken down, and we'd say to you know people would say, "Oh, look, it's just um, so good to have someone else in the room." We never. We never get it sorted out on our own. Someone always storms out or slams the door. And and when we're here together, um, then you just keep calming us down and we kind of follow it through. And and maybe only take one small goal at a time and and tackle that first. And but even, you know, in the worst situations you, you have to find you know, you'll be saying we have to get along and to say what are the th- what are the things that we do wrong for you? Um, what, you know, what changes would you like to see um, so that you can live in this family and and feel okay? Because most likely um, there's been some things which you haven't understood about their needs, um, or maybe there are under stresses which um, you've got no idea of. Um, and so, if a kid is acting in a terrible way. Um, they're not an evil person. They're not a bad person. Something is happening that's made their life really hard. And they're showing that at home because home is the place where we can be our worst. Um, and so someone has to be able to get alongside that kid and find out what the, what's going on in their world. And hopefully that's mum or dad. You know, dad and the and child go away for a couple of days. Maybe they have a big fight when they go away, but it all comes to the surface and they get it sorted out. Um, maybe it's something where you do need help. Um, but you have to keep on believing in your child and believing that, that they're not bad. There's something happening that they're stuck and you're stuck. It's not anybody's fault. It's just that you've got a crap dance, as we said at the start, and how to un- unravel that. And if you can't unravel it yourselves, of course, go, go and get some help with how to do that. Nobody can do it on their own. One of the philosophies we have in our household is to connect before we correct. Uh, 
So there's a chance within that conflict to say, let's just de-escalate whatever we're feeling or thinking or doing or what's happened um, and because you can't have a productive conversation within that type of mindset or or frame. And um, I'm wondering, and you've snuck a couple in as we've been talking, so this may be a redundant question and apologies if it is, but are there other things that, that guide your own parenting style? Yes, for sure. I think that... Um, Never. I, uh, the, the trouble the trouble that I've got into as a parent has always been when I've been shooting from the hip, um, and um, just stuff just comes out of my mouth. And so, I, I, what helps me the most is to always calm down, um, go for a walk, um, put it off till tomorrow, sleep on it, go and sit somewhere and write it all down, try and figure it out. Um, I'm lucky that I. Uh, it's very helpful to talk to my wife and and she's really helped me to because of being autistic she's really helped me to to rejoin the the human race in in, in the in the terms of, of how to get along with people and um, so I'm probably more open than a lot of people to just being um, told here's a better way to do it <laughs> um, and um, and so yeah uh, but I think always always t- you know, back off and chill out and it'll always go better when you've done that yeah brilliant okay um thank you so much i uh i appreciate it immensely in terms of the value you've given and the the time and insight that you've provided so uh so thank you it's been uh, been fabulous and good wishes to everyone who listens to this and and thanks so much Just a couple of things for those of you who are listening for the first time before we wrap up. If you enjoyed this episode and think it would be good company for your drive home, commute on the train or mental fuel during that daily workout, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform or head to andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content, videos, white papers and recommended reading that's going to help you move your mental furniture about people and performance, then sign up for more content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash contact. Thanks for listening.